0: How could this happen? Why didn't it work? I did everything according to the book, even down to the letter, and nothing's happening. Maybe for you Trekkies out there, the quote that's popping around in your head right now is It is possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. In life, I'm sure you've experienced this, you have an idea of where you want your life to go. And you put all the effort you can into making that dream a reality, only for life to give you a complete 180 and send you in the opposite direction. Maybe you put your heart out there in a relationship that you were completely open and transparent about. You love this person only to see them break your heart and walk away. Or you worked all those long hours week after week at your job to get that long hope for promotion only to see it given someone else or you're sitting in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru for 30 minutes, and you've been dreaming about this chocolate shake all day, and you get to the window, and they proceed to tell you that they're fresh out, which I know would never happen at Chick-fil-A, but bear with me in this example. So, you know, what's, what's the same? What's the similarity between all three of those instances? Well, in each one, in varying degrees, you're putting in some commitment, but all you're getting out of it is loss, And a feeling of helplessness, too. I mean, you can't go into Chick-fil-A and just make chocolate shakes magically appear. You can't make somebody love you. You can't take a promotion that's never been offered to you. I think those feelings of loss and helplessness affect how we view spiritual warfare, too. Because you and I know from experience, when we go mano-a-mano against the devil, we, we lose. And we keep losing. We wonder why we can't win in this battle. We try everything. We try to put everything we can into sending him away, and yet he keeps coming back. We still feel like we're losers. How do we win? In this spiritual warfare, that whether you and I are consciously realizing it right now or not, it's happening right here, right now. A battle for our hearts, a battle for our souls. How do we win in this warfare? How do we overcome? the disciples? We're completely clueless at trying to find the answers to those questions. So here they are. So this, think about this. So mere weeks before our gospel today, Jesus had sent the disciples out to do some incredible stuff. They were preaching the good news of Jesus, freeing people from the chains of sin. They were sending out demons forever. It was the most transcendent life experience they ever had. I mean, Jesus, looking at them, seeing what God is doing through them, actually says he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. They were dominating the spiritual battlefield until today. So here's the backdrop. I kind of told you about this a little bit in the gospel reading. But Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John on this mountain hike, but of course it wasn't just an ordinary mountain hike. They get to the top of this mountain and they see the rolling hills of Galilee, kissed by the sun, but then they see God's sun. A sight so blinding that the sun and the sky just can't compare. They see Jesus in his full glory on that transfiguration. In fact, Peter's mind was so mind-scorched that he just wanted to stay there. He never wanted to leave. But it's after that happens that we run into Jesus and his disciples again. So these other nine disciples that didn't get to go, they're sitting there twiddling their thumbs. Maybe they're locked into an all-out thumb war tournament, which I know probably didn't exist in first century A.D., but they're doing something to pass the time while Jesus is doing whatever he's doing on the mountain. And all of a sudden, this desperate father, carrying his only son, you can, you can tell he's been sweating for a long time. It's taken a lot of effort for him to get here, brings his son to, his, to these disciples and begs them, please do something about this. And so I can just imagine the disciples getting a little bit excited, you know, maybe rolling their shoulders a little bit, okay, power's going to start surging through my veins, we're going to send out this demon just like we've done it all these other times before, and they start doing their thing, and nothing happens. They try, and they try, and they try, same ineffective results. And it seems like these teachers of the law like to travel wherever Jesus is, trying to trip him up, trying to find any way they can pounce on a mistake. And they pounce really hard on the disciples here. Why do you believe this Jesus guy? Clearly his power isn't all that great. You can't even send out this demon. Why do you follow a teacher that clearly hasn't taught you well? Clearly you're woefully misguided. And this just turns into an all-out bickering fest. The disciples are trying to prove that they're right. The teachers of the law are trying to prove that they're right. And this is the ugly portrait that Jesus sees as he's walking step-by-step down that mountain and he is livid. He looks right into the eyes of these teachers of the law and he says, what are you arguing about? And a crowd starts forming, they hear this commotion, and they had heard about Jesus. He was the celebrity of the time here in Galilee. And so they come running to see what's going on. They want to see how Jesus is going to react. But notice, nobody answers Jesus' question. The teachers of the law don't say a thing. But Jesus does receive an answer, albeit from a very different source than he could have ever anticipated. This father, who has now just been pushed back into the crowd, Sends out a grief-induced cry. Says, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. The disciples had done everything according to the book, or so they thought. But the seizures kept happening. The demon he stayed. And the saddest part about this whole thing isn't that they failed. It's that instead of compassionately caring for this man, even if they couldn't drive out the demon, just to be there for him, bringing him the good news that Jesus does have hope for him and his son, they don't do that. No, they're worried so much about preserving their self, building themselves up, trying to build up their reputation, trying to defend themselves against these teachers of the law instead of Loving this father and son who had been through so much tragedy. But that's the big question, isn't it? Why couldn't they do it? They had done this so many times before. It was easy for them. Why in this specific instance, why couldn't they do it? Why couldn't they win? Why did they lose this spiritual battle? Well, as you and I begin the autopsy of this loss, we realize that we know the answer even before the research begins. You and I know that when we face temptation on our own, we face guilt on our own, and we face the devil on our own, there's only one result that's going to happen. We face an army every day that consists of the demon, capital D, Satan, all his demons are around us, and the ally of demons within, that sinful self. And the self thinks that we can handle this battle all entirely on our own. If I do the right thing, if I say the right thing, if I put it all on the field of battle, if I do this, I will win. And you can kind of sense the familiar mantra if you listen to that over and over again. It's that familiar vowel, I. It's this lie of spiritual self-sufficiency. It's an age-old tactic the devil's been using for generations. And you see the logic of it. See, if he convinces us that it's all on us to beat him, the only thing we're destined to win is loss and a sense of helplessness. That feeling like that father who, no matter where we turn, no matter how we fight, it doesn't make a difference. And the devil knows if we buy into that lie of spiritual self-sufficiency, we're never going to overcome. And not only that, we're going to start viewing Jesus as weak, powerless, ineffective, And so when people in our lives come to us, like this father and son came to these disciples hoping for something that they can put their hope on, something that can give them strength in this life, and we have, and you and I have those conversations, people that we love, people in our family that are going through some really tough stuff. We put so much pressure on ourselves to have the right thing to say, to do the right thing, and if we can't do it, nobody else can that same lie of spiritual self-sufficiency, putting all that weight on our shoulders, even though Jesus has already carried it all for us. So as this is going on, as this commotion is happening, Jesus looks at these disciples and he just, his heart breaks. And you can understand why this pains Jesus so deeply. Jesus, his heart that's the very epicenter of compassion, explodes. He looks at his disciples and says, "You." unbelieving generation. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. See, the disciples just didn't get it. They didn't realize just how helpless they were to help this family. And you and I often don't realize that either. So often we pin how Christian we are on our Bible trivia knowledge in our church attendance and our moral living when these are mere rusting bullets compared to the vast spiritual infantry of evil that we face every moment. And so Jesus can't stand that. And he has to do something about this. And so as his heart is just filled with pain that his disciples still don't understand who he is, his eyes see an even more heart-wrenching sight. He looks at this dad, he looks at this son, hopeless, practically lifeless, and he does something radical. He asks the dad, how long has he been like this? So he tries to remove these two away from the heightened atmosphere, away from the crowd. He has this one-on-one with this dad, and he asks him a question that he already knows the answer to. But he asks him this question for him to think about just the the amount of pain, the amount of tragedy he's been through. And he does it for a reason. The dad responds from childhood. And as his father realizes that fact, all those memories come flooding back. And you see a part of them here is often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. All the burns on his hands and his arms are a testament every day of the times he had to rip his son away from the flames the clothes that are constantly wet and damp because of all the times he's had to jump into the water to save his son from drowning. You can understand his feelings when if even the disciples can't help him in this problem, how could he expect anything more from Jesus? And that's when he finally says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. I don't know about you, but maybe you felt not just the devil's lie of self-sufficiency, but the other side of the coin, the lie of self-despair. You fall victim to that temptation again. You can't help that person again. You lose that battle again, and pretty soon you start thinking, what hope is there for me? All I can do is lose. All I can do is fail. Where can I find hope? It's when we find ourselves in those positions when we feel Satan's attack digging in, that all of a sudden a surprise attack begins to form. Jesus looks at this dad. He looks him right in the eye and he calls out these lies. He confronts the self. He looks at this dad and he says, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. And Jesus' surprise gospel attack hits home. Immediately, the father realizes that he needs to deny himself. Immediately, he knows who he needs to turn to. And he cries out, Lord, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Do you see the power in this conversation? Jesus cuts through the fog. He cuts through the darkness. He breaks the darkness like we just sang. He lovingly calls out this dad. And his heart is instantly changed. This is such a neat way the gospel comes to us. And we don't often think of it this way. But when Jesus sees us in this self-delusion and he has to do something about it, he has to say what at first seems like really harsh words when we look back on it. We say, thank you, Lord, for saying something to me. He breaks us out of this thought that we can beat the devil on our own. And then we step back and we realize just what we have. We find ourselves standing next to Jesus on that battlefield. And we see a smile on our Savior's face because he sees the look of terror in the devil's eyes because the devil knows he can't stand a chance to beat him. He smiles when he looks at you because you are a soldier empowered by him. Your strength and your valor, they come through faith in him. Not in self, but in the selfless son of God who loved you so much that he gave the ultimate sacrifice. A sacrifice that keeps giving you strength, power, Wisdom, joy, even in the midst of the hardest of life. The commander in chief who calls to you, that confronts you in love, that builds you up and equips you. The commander in chief who takes that stick like sword of pride that you're fighting the devil with and the sinful nature with, he rips that out of your hand and instead gives you the double edged sword of the Spirit. And he rips off that war-torn armor of self and instead he puts on this breastplate of righteousness, a perfect armor, unblemished, undented, unbreakable. He gives you the victory. You stand on that battlefield with him and even if your own faithlessness is surrounding you, he breaks through that. And you have that same cry that this father had, I do believe, overcome my unbelief and you witness Jesus doing incredible things you never thought possible, winning battles you never thought realistic to win. But even in all this victory and the thrill that we can experience that with our Savior, there's this element of pain even still. Because even in these battles, even in these victories, we still have wounds. Jesus looks at this son and he looks at the challenge that this son has had his entire life, and he looks at this demon, and he says, be out of him, leave, never come back to him again. And it happens, but notice this demon doesn't go down without a fight. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looks so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. See, When Jesus wins the battle for you and for me, Sometimes there's still a void that's left. And I know this sounds crazy because obviously we want to win. Why would we want to go back to what we kept losing to? But you feel this sense of emptiness. That temptation or that sin that you used to find pleasure and relief in is gone. Or that person you've been trying to help all these years and you tell them about Jesus and you see their life change and you're happy. But at the same time, there's that little part of you that kind of misses how much they used to need you. There's a void that we need to be filled. There's a wound that's there. The thing is, Jesus wasn't finished yet. This boy who looks like he's dead, who's been a mere shell of himself his whole life, Jesus takes him by the hand and lifts him to his feet, and he stands up. And for a brief moment, it's just this boy and Jesus. No words need to be said. No words can capture the meaning of this moment. This boy had a whole new identity. In all intents and purposes, he was, that his old self was dead. His new self had a whole new story to be written. Because he had Jesus. And you do too. When the battle rages, and it will, we all are going to leave these church doors today and we're going to face some challenging stuff. But don't be afraid. You don't need to be a victim anymore because you are a victor. You have a Savior who has overcome even the darkest of the darkness. You have a commander-in-chief who wants to have daily intel briefings with you, going into his words, seeing how he gives you strength, perspective, strategy. You have a commander-in-chief who wants to get your perspective on the battlefield through prayer. You talk to him. You wrestle with him. You see victory. And he gives you a church family here too. Your brothers and sisters in arms that stand on your side, Jesus in front of you, you're unbeatable. He gives you the spirit of Elijah that can look at enemies that outnumber you even 450 to one. And you can laugh because you know they're gonna lose. You have the victory. Jesus has overcome our unbelief. Jesus has overcome our enemy. Jesus has overcome. In every sense of that. He is the one who breaks the darkness. A light that is so undimmable, Satan can't even be in the same room. Or even the same universe. He is your Savior who fights for you. Who gives you confidence that you can laugh with sarcasm like Elijah did because you know the devil doesn't stand a chance. Who fights with you in every battle of life. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, because Jesus has overcome the world. And you have too. Amen. And to him who is able to keep you from falling, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be all glory, majesty, power, and authority, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. Amen.